0: This is The Light Inside. I'm Jeffrey Biesecker. Our ego, sometimes it can feel as big as Texas. Both when we relate to our own and as we consider those of other people. But just what is the ego? And what are the key roles this mystical entity serves as we navigate our healthy sense of self and our overall well-being as humans? According to modern researchers such as Lovinger and Cook Guter, There are seven primary levels of ego development. Therefore, it's essential we ask these questions when considering the evolution of our ego development. Born out of positive psychology, these answers lie within the paradigm of ego health. The ego is the seat of ourself, and it's also believed to be the seat of our identity. It is the seat of our personality and serves as the only thing that allows us to feel like we have any control. If you're like me, you might find yourself asking, how can ego be healthy? Joining us today is performance well-being coach, Georgina Halabi. Georgie and I share this very insightful exploration into the depths of ego. Tune in to find out the core behavioral patterns and fundamental traits that make up healthy ego development when we return to The Light Inside. When it comes to mobile service providers, with their high-rate plans, extra fees, and hidden cost or expenses, many of the big-name networks leave a bad taste in your mouth. Mint Mobile is a new flavor of mobile network service, sharing all the same reliable features of the big-name brands, yet at a fraction of the cost. I recently made the change to Mint Mobile, and I can't believe the monthly savings allowing me to put more money in my pocket for the things which truly light me up inside. Making the switch to Mint Mobile is easy. Hosted on the T-Mobile 5G network, Mint gives you premium wireless service on the nation's largest 5G network. With bulk savings on flexible plan options, Mint offers three, six, and 12-month plans, and the more months you buy, the more you save. Plus, you can also keep your current phone or upgrade to a new one, keep your current number or change to a new one as well, and all of your contacts, apps, and photos will seamlessly and effortlessly follow you to your new, low-cost Mint provider. Did I mention the best part? You keep more money in your pocket. And with Mint's referral plan, you can rescue more friends from big wireless bills while earning up to $90 for each referral. Visit our Mint Mobile affiliate link at... TheLightInside.us forward slash sponsors for additional mobile savings or activate your plan in minutes with the Mint mobile app. The ego, it often rules our lives. It drives us to do things that would be detrimental to our growth and development, yet we often are at the mercy of this all-powerful force. The ego is the center of attention in psychology Yet other than its identification as a source of psychological problems and difficulties, it has remained somewhat of a mystery. But now some psychologists say they have cracked the code of what makes an ego healthy. And even more mysteriously, what takes it there? Over the past year, a program at The Light Inside had a look at the state of ego development theory and how it applies to our understanding of the human condition. And it's an exciting time to be alive with these concepts coming into focus. At least that is our perception of the situation. At first glance, the ego state model seems to be a pretty good model. It's easy to remember, and it serves as a useful tool for teaching us how to identify different ego states. The problem with the model, however, is that it doesn't tell us just how to reach that higher consciousness. The answer to that question is a powerful mix of conscious choice, personal commitment, and deliberate lifestyle design. And also, perhaps a significant dose of being willing to let go of anything and everything that we have come to know, then recognizing with good measure our limiting blocks and unconscious filters. Something that often cannot be reached without compassionate and constructive outside feedback from another person. And perhaps this fact alone stands as a testament to why we resist. Unless questioned by an outside source, the ego, or else its development, is not something that most of us tend to think about. Joining us today is Performance well-being Coach, Georgina Halabi. Hello, Georgina. I am so excited today to have this conversation with you looking at ego and how we can feed and nurture, yes, feed and nurture, a healthy state of self-awareness and ego development. Developing this show has been such a fun process, and I'm really excited to dive in with you today. <laughs> oh, so to be here, thank you for having me. This has been such an interesting study and guesting experience. It's ultimately the goal of our program to meet guests where we can actually engage in some of these deeper exchanges. I'm finding a lot of times, this is probably a biased view in and of itself, that we get kind of that packaged approach and we even do it ourselves. I have to admit it sometimes where we're just kind of pitching one core idea. I love that we've been able to kind of interact, especially on this topic of ego, because it is a good exercise to see where we sometimes allow that ego to get in our way, possibly.
1: I love that you're thinking that. I was thinking the same on my walk today. I I can understand my own uh, blocks in this. And it's interesting to sort of have someone challenge that and almost step away and and for a start, notice those blocks and then move past it. So, yeah, I'm totally welcoming.
0: That's the great thing. Ultimately, I think that's the core gist, go to my brain for whatever reason there is pattern programming core gist of what we're trying to get at is where in our brain or where in our body that goes on, where we start to form some of those patterns that might be a block. And even that in and of itself opens a lot of doors. So I'm glad that we do have, we, we have similarities, but there are some, differences that we can look at then that do bring our unique perspective in there so
1: i kind of think they're all fingers pointing at the same moon it's just <laughs> sometimes the labels that we put on them but i'm just trying to go okay so if i was to sort of understand it from a more freudian perspective how would that look whereas my own background is really about studying how this goes from the inside out yeah, it's yeah. more of forest asian
0: and that's that whole reference the finger pointing so often that's the process that our ego is doing it we're kind of looking at blame I' just come off of I'm putting together an episode this week with another guest on blame and why we kind of form this cultural aspect of blame it's basically what our ego is doing and sometimes we're even doing it within our interactions with others we're kind of looking for those gaps I'll say gaps you know fault sometimes it's fault sometimes it's blame sometimes it's seeing the difference. Rather than honoring that gap, so often we try to cover it up and fill it in.
1: Oh, that would be a fantastic topic. Blame—I'd love to hear that. It's one <laughs> finger pointing this way and three fingers pointing back.
0: Pointing back—that's—I yeah. love that. That's one quote that you know when we look at it and we have that open-mindedness. So often that is the case. That finger is nothing more than poking our interconnectedness. I and love Sometimes that. Yeah. the whole focus of that conversation itself was looking at. How do we own our responsibility? How do we take authority yet still remain open with each other? We looked at the case with the Cincinnati Zoo where the young child was drugged into the gorilla cage a few years back. You know, there was an incident at the zoo where a child, relatively young, had climbed into a gorilla enclosure at the zoo, and the gorilla, by its behavior, had taken this child in. From that protective mechanism, yet from our human perspective, in the fear of our uncertainty, our belief was that the gorilla was going to harm the child. So there was a lot going on. They eventually took the gorilla down, killed him to get the child because it was protecting that child from anyone getting it. So there was a lot of interesting angles to look at that. We brought that into that blame. So much of that blame is trying to find fault rather than making reason. It's interesting to look I at. want to
1: hear that podcast. That sounds so good. Yeah. This fear, sometimes it's not about thinking rationally. Sometimes it's about that survival and protection. And that's where ego
0: is all about, right? It's all about protection, protecting ourselves
1: or this idea we have of ourselves.
0: Yeah, that's one angle, I think, that protection Ultimately, I think we'll get into that a little deeper here in a while.
1: Okay. Yeah, I'm okay.
0: We do only see it as that one core aspect. A lot yeah. of times we fit that to our filters. Yeah. Our perception, our experience. We try to marginalize it in a lot of ways to say, well, it's only doing one thing. And so We even kind of stigmatize that in a lot of regards throughout society. I'll say throughout society can be a pattern that comes up that we stigmatize that protection. What protects us? should be, in some regards, viewed as good or beneficial. Beneficial may be a little less subjective than good or bad. Where is that protection being beneficial? And when does that protection become kind of a pushing away or pushing out? Yeah, so that's what we're going to
1: explore today, right? Yes,
0: I think ultimately that's the bottom of the barrel. We hope to throw our cards on the table today is how I'm going to frame things. We're just going to throw cards on the table because we do operate from our own perspectives. That self that we sometimes have to have the self, but sometimes we have to surrender the self. From my perspective, we'll get into that.
1: The self is empty. It is nothing in and of itself. It's not permanent and fixed like we think it is. It's plastic and it's changing. So do we use it to harness what we want to perceive in ourselves that will catalyze us to grow, or do we want it to be from that part of our brain that's all about survival? One is evolutionary. The other is kind of just, yeah.
0: Ultimately, I look to thrive and strive on that throughout our program. How can we really connect on this stuff? How can we look at it deeper? I try to check myself every episode and say, where do I take this information from another and then kind of operate within that? Not to kind of filter it or judge it, but to just simply say, how do I make myself available to that and open up to consider?
1: I I acknowledge and appreciate that mindset. I'm going to do the same. I think that's a really powerful space for, for communication.
0: Awesome. I think this is just going to be such a powerful episode in and of itself because it does have such a breadth of looking at different aspects and angles. So Georgina, jumping in today, can you share with our listeners a little bit about your background and your history in coaching?
1: So the main thing is that I'm a performance and well-being coach. I've been coaching for five years. So a lot of this is how I'm coaching my clients on my, my core thing is about confidence being at the crux of everything, but I'm also a lifelong meditator. I studied Buddhism for four or five years. So everything up to a novice monk, although I wouldn't uh, label myself as a Buddhist, but really understanding the whole philosophy behind it. And so um, my approach is a lot more of mind system, their concept of how the mind system works, you know, how we take in data from our senses, Assemble it and package it, discriminating mind goes on top and then filters it. And that a lot of what, you know, I was reading from your stuff, it it intimidated me slightly because it's like very much more a psychological approach. And I'm like, okay, I'm trying to marry these two worlds, but at the same time, fully acknowledging my lack of complete knowledge in that sphere. I know a, a bit, you know. I've, I've just finished something by Jung, but it's really much more of a, a spiritual, philosophical
0: approach that I've applied on myself. I've applied on, on people I work with. I have to give a hearty chuckle, you know, when you point out and mention that intimidation level because that's something I inherently know about myself and something that's inherently been programmed into my family from you know the childhood aspect is we were brought up with the motto. I don't know is not an answer now Hmm. that has a lot of nuance to it. In one regard, that could be very traumatic as a child when you don't have answers and when you don't have a lot of the core aspect to kind of parse that out.
1: That is massive because one of the things that help us expand as human beings is curiosity. (laughs) So I don't know is probably the starting point for that. When we look at sort of vulnerability, as well, it's like I'm not supposed to have all the answers, but hey, I can ask the right questions. It's that yeah. idea that we don't know. We learn more from what we don't know, because what we do know is just it's, it's labels, it's concepts, it's squeezing so much into you know such a small box.
0: Ultimately, that just questioning the curiosity was the key takeaway that our mother, mm-hmm. I feel from my perspective, was her core goal. Simply by questioning, you do find that information. You do find the way. You do consider things. It's not right. always right or wrong, but you don't put yourself behind those blocks. that say, i I'm fearful of this. I'm that. fearful of this in an unhealthy way was ultimately as an adult, the takeaway I've grown and evolved into is healthy fear is good. Healthy fear. Allows us to realize some of those natural limitations, so we don't just naturally hide behind them. So well, we can acknowledge the block or the filter, where yeah. we can acknowledge where we sometimes set ourselves behind, so to speak.
1: Yeah. So I don't know. Is therefore an invitation to find
0: out more. I think ultimately we we did a lot today. Uh, I'll admit that intimidation factor popped up because I feel. Ego is one of these things that we all deal with throughout life that we get a lot of mixed messages in our conditioning from ourselves, from how others utilize it. And I think it warrants maybe even a couple of episodes, you know, might not even begin to scratch the surface from some regards. It doesn't scratch the surface. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a certain amount of ego I have to acknowledge in myself to going to that level of digging deeper, find a bottom. It can become intellectual bypassing sometimes sometimes you're bypassing some of the Simplicity I, I know I catch myself bypassing the Simplicity but sometimes we also use it to kind of hide when we seek oversimplification or over identification as a big one
1: yeah I mean if your ego is connected to intellectualism but it's not always for everybody I think at this point it's <laughs> interesting and useful to sort of Define ego so for me ego is Simply how we perceive ourselves. At its simple terms, how we identify ourselves. So Georgina, the mother, Georgina, the coach, Georgina, the stick on any one of those roles. I am compassionate. I am kind. I am driven. I am all of these I am's, right, that are how I perceive myself. And then underneath that, all of the sort of dirtier, deeper things like I am ashamed, I am guilty, I am, you know, all of those things that go beneath the surface and are prefaced with I am. Those are the beliefs, right? And so the ego drives our actions, drives our mindset, and it keeps on reinforcing our experience of ourselves. But it's just an illusion. It's just what we tell ourselves. And that can be changed. So that's where we talk about self confidence, self-esteem, self, it's all driven on this platform of self, how we see ourselves. Whereas ego, another word for I, self, has all of the negative aspects of it, right? Somebody who's seen as egotistical is seen as self-ish, self-centered.
0: I think it's a great stepping in point today to see how sometimes then we just start to see those cultural references. Why have we kind of framed that From that definition, where we start to subjugate it only to negativism, to automatically create limitations just in how we frame it comes a filter. We'll get into filters from a certain perspective, hopefully a little bit deeper in, but we start to form a boundary of of how we perceive it. That's the ego itself. (laughs) And I believe it has its own kind of identity or own way of relating based on what we feed it. Yes. From a certain perspective, what we feed it. I believe, from a certain perspective, that its ultimate goal is for our health and well-being. That it's fully empowering rather than limiting. That its main goal is to see our well-being and our common good.
1: Can I um, put a distinction in there that sort of explains, I guess, how how I see it? Yeah. So, self is neither good nor bad. It's programmable. <laughs> it's empty. And so, when we look at the self or the concept of ego we can program it to whatever we want it to be but what is it that's programming it that's the bigger question right yes. <laughs> so that, that's, that's the consciousness that's the witness that's the part of ourselves that can look at it and go this is good behavior this is bad behavior not that either really exists they're all different forms of judgments but we can experience and we can witness what's happening and our thoughts emotional response behavior Self identity, right? All of the stories that we tell about ourselves. So when we come from that part, which is higher self, super ego, whatever it is, higher consciousness, that is the part we can then use to discern how we use our ego to pull us out of the mire, to pull us out of this self doubt, self hatred, which keeps us really locked in the back of our brain and suffering. So really, it's the dissolution of self, the transcendence of self, using the concept of self as
0: a stepping stone. I think it says things so beautifully and eloquently today. Looking at that stepping stone aspect, I have to kind of get out of my own ego to say, even though we might have worded that slightly different, even though we have a little bit of wiggle room in our variants and how we see that stepping stone playing out, yeah. those very forces are at play. You mentioned in our interactions that notion of the two wolves and how we look at that folklore aspect of it and saying, which of the two do we feed? And is it only two wolves or might we exist sometimes as an entire pack? Oh, that's beautiful. And why do we relate it to wolves? First and foremost, we see certain aspects of us in something that isn't us. Yeah. You know, well, there, that's
1: folklore the is so powerful, right? It's got so many subliminal roots so you talk about <laughs> wolves and automatically people feel fear you know think of story and or think of survival and wolves so yeah absolutely we've got this idea of ego tied in with a fear a really strong
0: metaphor for fear here's an interesting aside i'll say aside we're going to earmark it as that because first and foremost how much time have any of us spent looking at wolves asking yourself as a listener Have you ever actually experienced a wolf one-on-one either in wild or captivity to see what they do? Or do we base that largely on ego-driven assumptions that start to form that filter of what we classify these behaviors as? Now, getting out of the way of my ego with this and not to stoke some of those notions we build on ego. I spent a portion of my life, grew up an artist. There's a, a label and title. I grew up through a career of art, branding, design, and as an aside to that, I spent some time in a wildlife artist career as a part of my career history, painting and selling art, going to wildlife art shows, painting wildlife. As a proponent of that, I've spent quite a bit of time studying wolves, studying their anatomy, studying their behaviors, because in order to paint accurately a wolf, you have to kind of understand what they're doing. You know, we get a lot of those stories about the wolf and the Little Red Riding Hood, but that's very uncharacteristic of typical behaviors of wolves. I've spent time one-on-one sitting in an enclosure with wolves licking my face, just like my puppy dog downstairs. We don't often acknowledge and accept that kind, nurturing, compassionate side of wolves in general. We talk about letting our story shine. It was just, I'm riffing on that in the instant here to say, here's where I let my story shine. Just because we can relate and say that sometimes we don't take the time to know the subject matter. And that becomes a filter. Yeah. What an
1: experience. And you look at a different cultural bias. You've got Romulus and Ramus, right? old Roman myths of these two boys who were raised and nurtured by wolves. Yeah, which story do we believe? Why do we have to believe any of those stories? Why don't we go sit with the <laughs> You know, I, which is why I invite all everybody here go and sit with your egos. Go and sit hey, with
0: yourselves. I think ultimately, if we were to get out of the way of our egos as a collective, that would be a close the book story done today. And we've we've done that in about probably 15 minutes of conversation, to be honest. Do we need to go further and validate it? Yes, unfortunately, or fortunately, we can look at some other aspects. Going back, I'm going to reference a little bit again to that experience personally with the wolves. I want to hang there a moment, if you might give me the grace on that. Just to make one quick point, when I approach those experiences. First, it was from an outside enclosure and just having that fence and being literally two foot on the other side of a fence. The fence itself was a very psychological block because the fence automatically tells you there's something here that's to be guarded or kept out in some regards. Standing there with that first contact being you know literally not even a foot away from wolves and they come up and have a very direct, engaged look in their eye. You start to form assumptions about what that look is telling you. Just like with our human connection, they connect very much with their eyes and their pack behaviors. Ultimately, when you study the biology of it, they're looking for is that acknowledgement, just like our human emotion. They want to feel engaged. They want to feel trust. They want to feel connection. That's the core of that gaze. But we've kind of subjectively put our own fears onto that. I sit there literally goosebumps. You know, I still think about it and the goosebumps that rise up because you can sense such a sense of energy and presence in these animals, such a directness, such intention. Most of that is benign. Most of that is encouraging. Most of that is supporting. Here we're forming all of these stories around that. But do we take the time to study those behaviors? Yes, there has been individuals that do from that biological aspect. First time I sit down and a wolf is trotting up, you know, and I've got their handlers in a wolf rescue where they've taken wolves that people tried to make pets of and they kind of re acclimate them to somewhat of a wild environment. There are differences because they haven't been genetically programmed, just like we're genetically programmed epigenetics to have certain behaviors and beliefs. So too can wolves. But when we're thrown into those environments where it's unnatural, to what our core patterns are, suddenly there's disparity.
1: And yet that response, that fear response, serves a deeper survival function. So for example... Those were wolves that had been taken in, trained. Yeah. If you were to meet a wolf in the wild, you know, your first instinct wouldn't be to go nose to nose and have a. <laughs> <laughs> Very rightfully, your amygdala would have been, you know, triggered. You would be in fight, flight, or freeze straight away. And that's where the whole idea of heuristics comes in. It's like, okay, get me out of here. And that does serve a purpose. It does serve a purpose too.
0: So from that perspective, I'm going to frame this question into you, Georgina. Do you feel then in that regard that ego does then serve a beneficial protective role? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So if, if I can put it in terms of how I understand it and maybe sort of project it into the brain as the organ, right, and and where it sits, it serves a purpose. So when we grow up, first seven years of our life, we're downloading everything, okay, we're downloading glass of water, tree, this is me, this is who I am. Okay. So that goes into our brain and it's conditioned by what our caregivers tell us, what society tells us, culture tells us, etc. So even our perception of self is biased as we go and it's unchecked, it's unvalidated, right? So that goes into the back of the brain so that we can then go and interact with life without having to wonder what that is, that could possibly hydrate us. It just goes in for our survival. So that, that ego is already built in, right? And it's there to protect us. It's there to keep us familiar with this constant flow of events that's happening and to place ourselves within that, the narrator, if you like. But within that, you have this idea of survival. We are fragile souls, right? So if somebody's nasty to us, we feel hurt. So our ego then comes in to try and protect us, thinks it's doing us a favor. You know, that person's being horrible, they're a bad person, you're a good person, or I feel deep shame. You know, often what happens when kids are very young is they see their parents as gods. They have to be gods because they're our primary caregivers. So if anything goes wrong, we take it on ourselves. We're the ones that are wrong. So for example, I'm not pretty enough. I'm not intelligent enough. I'm not whatever. I'm just not enough. That tends to be the underlying thought. That's what our judge tells us. The judge is often our ego right? It's trying to protect our ego. So you've got all of these things juggling around this concept of who we are that's been determined by others. And this constant narrative that we have within ourselves creates this whole idea of who we are. And we do that to protect ourselves from getting hurt, from getting, you know, being a tall poppy and getting shot down. We are essentially primates. We run in a pack. And so our ego is really about making sure that we don't stick out and we're not abandoned because that's death. So our ego is really at its most fundamental part, a survival mechanism. Now, this is talking about ego from the back of the brain, concept yeah. itself. Okay. When you access a different part of your brain, your prefrontal cortex, this is very different because that part of the brain is responsible for your meta-awareness. It's responsible for creativity, resourcefulness, empathy. This is where we are connected to this higher self. And from that space, we can look at that poor, fearful part of us that is feeling shame, that's feeling guilt, that's lacking esteem. And it already knows we are enough. It already knows that we are abundant. It already knows that there is no separate self. There is no disconnection. There is no fragmentation. It just knows that. And it's full of compassion and love. Fear exists here. Love can't. Love exists here. Fear can't. So the concept of self is experienced to by the two parts of our brain. And I'm just pointing at the, the front of my head here for the prefrontal cortex, right? And the back of the brain, the survival part, right? Two very different places. So I kind of like to see the ego is at the back of my brain, whereas this higher self is accessed
0: through your prefrontal cortex, through your sage. That's a great point. And there again, where do we kind of discern that in our own perspectives, Kind of parses out how some of the ego, some of the conditioning comes in. I look at backing up a bit here, first and foremost, you know, acknowledging that fact that you acknowledge the brain as an organ. Mm. Sometimes I feel we over identify that brain as kind of taking on its own part of our identity itself.
1: Ah, uh, so the brain is different than the mind. The brain is
0: a hardware. Yeah mind is the software, and the, the software can recreate the hardware. The circuitry. I just got done right before we jumped on. I just stumbled into this great peer-supported research on unhealthy ego. What can neuroscience tell us about the self? The big core takeaway was from Joseph LeDoux, a PhD in neurobiology, who simply relates to that fact that it's merely circuitry. That's performing that process. It's not that it's just one area of the brain or even perhaps one area of our overall somatic system. That's I'm, how it's expressed. I'm venturing through. We start to see how it's expressed through emotion. We're starting to venture down roads where by certain perceptions, perspectives, frameworks, where we're understanding that there are a lot of areas of our body doing everything. And ultimately, Sometimes it's the ego wanting to separate that out and say, no, let's blame it on the mindset. You know, let's blame it on the heart. You know, we want to take all of our emotion and put it in our heart. And sometimes we filter that and sometimes we neglect or we oversee or undersee where the heart, the brain, the circuitry of the various brain. Our brain is such a mystery, I feel still, of how that interaction is happening. In a lot of regards, because there are chemical processes, there are hormonal processes, there are electrical processes, there are a number of other processes that I feel science hasn't really scratched the surface of how that miraculous interaction takes place. Overall, I'm pulling back a little here from my perspective that ego is an overall functionality of our body, of our experience and beyond, you know, we, we look at our extended, what we label higher consciousness. Most of that originates from within our body. Is it higher or is it just all right there?
1: So having, you know, being a meditator, I think sometimes when you meditate, you have absolutely no concept of your body. Your body is somewhere else. Yeah. You're feeling your leg, but actually you can no longer feel the parameter of your leg. It, it You know, you think it's there. <laughs> But it might actually be this way so this whole idea i mean on, on one hand we're looking at the functionings of the body how it all works you know what happens whereas when we start to talk about the ego when we're starting to to talk about these much more nebulous things mm. right that, that are expressed as chemical reactions and thoughts and all the rest of it this is this is how it's expressed but it's um It's much more to do with the energetics, much more to do with the intentions. I mean, essentially, we start to look at the stream of consciousness. Stream of consciousness is where ego exists. And of course, self is bigger than that. The idea of the totality of self or the higher self is much more than just our body. It's collective. It's the sum of consciousness, unconsciousness, everything else. So, yes, we're all connected. Everything's connected. Our nervous system, our brain, our body. But it's connected even beyond that. And that's one of the things that the ego thinks. It thinks it's one. It's not.
0: It's one of many ones. And probably ones beyond our comprehensible ability to even create a concept around. (laughs) There's just an opinion. You talk about that act of meditation. You know, that's a routine habit of mine, meditation. I find that, you know, I share that experience sometimes where you kind of do let all guards down. You do kind of withdraw from yourself. There are other times where I experience that, the complete opposite, where I sit there, some of those guards come down, the filters dissolve. And I feel from probably an ego-driven perspective, (laughs) that sense of self does engage kind of a higher consciousness, I start to access things, however that transpires throughout my body and systems, where I feel I'm receiving downloads, so to speak, where information spontaneously, you know, some of the the deeper concepts I share throughout our programs happen as a result of my meditation. I don't immediately know if I've ever contacted half the stuff that we share. I'm going to be completely transparent about it. I don't know where the sometimes words that I use that then I go back and research. Where did that come from? I don't recall ever having exposure to that anywhere in my acknowledged awareness. Where do those things come? And do we discount it? Do we pick it apart and say, "Oh, da 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 da"? Or do we open that acceptance up and say, "Well, it probably is some operative beyond us." everything that's knowable first has to be able to be acknowledged
1: Hmm. being able to to
0: channel all of that it's available and
1: i think people miss that people are so busy looking outside and you can just sit in meditation and everything is available to you there is so much wisdom and yes how do you take it into the conscious realm well you go and you test it you go and you live it you go and explore it i don't know it's not an option (laughs)
0: Right? <laughs> I don't know is an option and is not an option. You know, yeah. then again, do we get out of our way? Do we look at I don't know as the limitation? Or do we allow that gate from that perspective of seeing the ego as a gatekeeper or overseer? Sometimes it's the switchkeeper. Does so it switch the things off or does it switch it on?
1: So then that's the definition of ego that we're down to. I mean, to me, when I channel. I channel from above my head. I can feel it in the crown. I can feel it in energetic. Ego has nothing to do with it. I'm just sort of there in flow, receiving. Normally I'm receiving when I'm deep in conversation with other people or I'm reading. And my ego is not there. I'm aware of narrative, my own thoughts, but I'm not attached. So to me, this is the concept of higher self. And I am always going in and talking. And I'll create images, I'll create illusions or whatever, but I get to have that interaction because we have so much wisdom within ourselves. Ego is scratching the surface. Ego is malleable. Ego is how we go and feel better about that really scary talk that we have to do. So we sort of up our ego, self-confidence, all of those other things. But to me, you know, the more we can get out of our own way, the more we can drop this idea of self and just be in the moment, then we're able to sort of interact with life. Then we can download. Just get it out of our own thoughts. Because our thoughts just take us away from the present.
0: Up next, Georgie and I discuss ego filters and how we can assess the stages and present level of our ego development. But first, a word of support for our affiliate partners. I want to share a little secret with you today about a podcast booking and matching platform I truly love. As a podcast host and guest, my go-to podcast booking app is PodMatch.com. If you currently have a podcast, regularly guest on podcast, or if you are new to the podcasting game, looking to start your show, PodMatch.com is an industry leader. They quickly and effortlessly connect ideal podcast guests and hosts. Their process is super easy and highly effective. Create your free guest or host account and set up your profile. It's really that easy. And the Podmatch AI will work its magic in the background, delivering your ideal interview matches within minutes, tailored uniquely for you. As a host and executive producer of the top 100 self-improvement podcast, The Light Inside, I found more high quality guests on Podmatch than anywhere else and in a fraction of the time. So if you're looking to expedite your podcast booking experience, fill in your calendar with high engagement content, creating value and meaning for your listening community. Check out podmatch.com, that's P-O-D match.com today and discover your Ideal Match Magic. The Ego is the center of our perception. In this paradigm, we look at the ego as a liability or subjective factor in how we view ourselves and our lives. There are many different traits that can be identified in how the ego has developed over time. From the most immature, think your average toddler, to the most mature, as we imagine the Dalai Lama. We can view these traits as healthy and balanced, or seeing them as more neurotic in nature. The individual who has an extremely healthy ego is often highly stable, secure. The most widely accepted model of ego development is the one that was created by the American psychologist Jane Lovinger, who was able to show how people change along a continuum of maturity from childhood to old age. The ego is a tool used to help us navigate through life and understand ourselves. In the well-developed ego, we have a healthy sense of self and we can understand the world around us. However, in the underdeveloped ego, we can easily become lost in our thoughts and feelings without being able to understand the world around us. Ego is the developed construct that defines a sense of self. This sense of self is a cognitive structure that defines our identity, sense of belonging, and perception of where we fit into the world. Our ego is our belief system, how we feel about ourselves, how we think others see us, and how we choose to interact with them. You know what they say, it's often the devil you don't know that will get you. This is also true when looking at the ego and how we view it. In fact, a recent study by Cook Guter in 2012 suggested if we are to succeed in life, our egos need to be used as an asset rather than a liability. By changing the filters we often use when forming our perceptions, we're also able to change how we view ourselves in the world. I'm going to throw this out there as kind of a left curve question. Do you feel that there's a healthy ability to create a partnership with a sense of ego self in a sense of non-self or selflessness?
1: Yes. So this is all the shadow work as well. Yeah. Yeah. It comes from acceptance of self. It comes from love. So the whole journey is about moving from fear and survival to love and expansion. And that is within our own evolution our own fear of ourselves, our own shadow sides, what's acceptable and what's not, to also the evolution of our brain to move from that part of survivor brain to that part of, you know, um higher self. So yes, there is. There is a part of the process is loving all of ourselves. But you know, forgiving is not even the right word, because forgiving is not even relevant. You don't have light without dark. Light cannot exist without dark. They're part and parcel of the same thing. Yes. So you can't have good ego without bad ego. These are just labels. Once we begin to understand that emptiness of ourself, we can transcend it. Good ego, bad ego. It's
0: We love all of ourselves. That's where that healthy beneficial role of subjectivity comes in. Yeah. Because you're able to simply ask the questions or ask a question not even about right or wrong, to just simply say, let's trade frameworks, let's trade foundations, let's swap out views, let's swap out perspectives. The more I feel we evolve through that process of ego and seeing it as a process or a framework, the more we can dance between the two. The Are more, you talking about
1: consciousness here, Jeffrey? Are you talking about identity? Ultimately, consciousness. Yeah.
0: The consciousness is... What's creating, to some degree, how we subjectively funnel that identity? Yes. So do we have to identify as an entrepreneur to run a business, you and I? We're both business people doing a process of business. Can we have a healthy relationship with that identity and step into those roles, tasks, and sometimes healthy expectations of them? Sometimes how we project that to others. We have to form some way to recognize it. You know, I have to recognize to some degree who you are to speak to you. My wife laughs at me all the time because I'll get on these stream of consciousness conversations where she'll ask me a question, Well, how was your day? And I'll start talking about some of these deeper concepts. I get into that stream of consciousness, and it's like I'm not even identifying with her and what her question was or where her perspective was. You know, I want to hear that you were all right. I want to you know, hear how your basic interactions were. Here I'm off. Yeah. And somehow I get engaged with this idea of talking about ego. And she's like, wait a minute. I didn't ask anything about ego. Yeah. I asked, you know, did you have a good interview? What was your day like? You know, yes, it was. But then I automatically dive into that stream. It just flows out of me. And I catch myself sometimes going back then and even saying 10 minutes later through all of the kind of ramble and unwinding, downloading, saying, wait a minute. And I'll chuckle at myself and I chuckle to her. I says, what was the original question? <laughs> yeah. I'm asking 40 other questions in my mind and not in an overwhelmed manner. Yeah. I don't feel that anticipatory anxiety that most people are often, there's an ego slip. that some people can sometimes feel. I'll frame it that way.
1: Yeah. And I think you raised some really, really good points, Jeffrey. And I, I want to go back to your key question, yes. which was about... Can identifying with a healthy ego help us? Like, do we need to believe that we're an entrepreneur in order to run a business? And I think this is really good because you're anchoring it down into reality. And ego works. It works. How we see ourselves be affects how we act, which affects how we see ourselves. Again, it's like a virtuous circle or it could be a a vicious cycle either way. So yes, um, our ego and recreating Perception of self is really, really important. Sort of, I am a good person. I am a loving person. I am, because it, it elevates us out of yeah. all of the negativity. It, it It's an affirmation. And of course, as a coach, I'm still trying to work out the dynamics between my own deeper understanding of no self and the fact that I work with clients on self-esteem you know but ultimately as soon as they start meditating and they start building the awareness of thoughts emotional response behavior they kind of they're yeah. able to step away from self yeah. they're able to get to higher self so it's not even it's not even an issue it's just it just becomes part of the journey that opens up to them
0: so here's a left curve curveball at you i tend to throw those out about every conversation and i'm acknowledging it even more as we run through the program can negativity itself be either negative or positive. There's a deeper look. Can negativity itself be also either negative or positive in its negativity? Can it serve as an anchor at times that becomes the limitation or the thing to look at, be aware of? Or can it also become a balloon that does raise you into that higher awareness? It
1: depends how you see it, right? You can choose it to be a gift or you can choose it to be a curse, right? I'm sure we've all heard stories of people who've had the worst experiences ever and they've turned it into something good. I have a really good friend who's got stage four cancer and it's the best thing that's ever happened to her. You know, it's we talk about this, this thing that's happening in her body and destroying. That's not how she talks about it. It's a loving interaction that she has. So uh, how we perceive things to be affects how they are. And of course, within that, we have choice. We have choices to how we see ourselves. We have choices to our ego. But awareness is the first part. So to answer your question, yeah, negativity can be negative or it can be positive because, of course, it's subjective. What is negative for you might not be negative to anyone else. Everything is subjective.
0: I'm going to let that one pause and hang.
1: Sorry, left curve back at you, Jeffrey.
0: Yes, I love that. I'm glad that. That allowed you to kind of just step in. Same goes for the positivity. Right. In that reference to dealing with cancer, do we sometimes slip into that over positivity? You know, some of those symptoms come up. If you neglect to acknowledge that kind of negative aspect and impact on your health and well-being and say, oh, I'm just going to brush this under the rug. I I don't want to deal with this because it's scary. And it is scary. My sister now is going through a second round of breast cancer. Just discovered last week. As a brother, I have to fight back the tears right now. Mm. Because it's scary as hell. Mm. But unless we acknowledge that that exists, it has a negative aspect to her health, to her well-being, to all of her connections. Do we sweep it under the rug and say, but I'm just going to find only positive and not acknowledge that there was a negative aspect of that.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like uh, looking at the wolves and just judging them, rather than sitting down nose to nose. Yeah, and there is definitely, you know, there's there's something I heard about toxic positivity yeah. recently, and I think there's that as opposed to just this is this is what's happening. I'm here now and just experiencing it fully for yourself as well as a brother and somebody who loves her
0: neither good nor bad it just is yeah no and from her aspect i'm gonna i'm gonna let her shine today yeah she is trying to find that levity of but there is a light on the other side (laughs) there is a way to not allow that to become the wolf that eats you from the inside out yeah (laughs) <laughs> I, yeah, as I, s- I say that i have to laugh because i'm having images of experiences i've watched wolves literally yeah. in a wild feeding and i'm like that's very much how we do you know we're eating ourselves from the inside out a lot of times
1: yeah we are but that's part of that's part of the process it's what we all yeah. do yeah it's what we get to learn from and, and having said that, there is something that stands in opposition to this, right? Talking about how the body works and how it's expressive or how it's expressed. So I'm, I'm reading a book right now called The Expectation Effect. And it's absolutely remarkable. So uh, if we read that a particular drug will give us a societal effect, more people statistically are going to experience it than if they don't, right? So, and these are actual real symptoms. They're not faking it. It's beyond psychosomatic. It's actually Created within their body. So how we see ourselves, how we see our future, how we see our illness, how we talk about it is going to create that physically within our body. Same with our ego. How we see ourselves is going to create how we are expressed in
0: our lives. That sounded rather poetic. (laughs) I just watched a great episode of Grey's Anatomy this week. Talking about that placebo effect. I love that show also because they do kind of dive into more of the human side of our medical interactions. They do find those analogies of how we exist in our lives. And I think that's been the longevity of that show is that relatability. How do we draw those comparisons? But in the show, you know, talking about that placebo effect. From a very medically based idea of how that creates that kind of healing and nurturing. Yeah. That allows us to see those perspectives, how that allows us to empower that sense of authority.
1: Mm. And also the Nusibo effect, right? The idea of the opposite, the no- <laughs> it will harm. Yeah. I've been watching Grey's Anatomy for maybe four or five years now. <laughs> it's my <laughs> little indulgence. I love it. <laughs>
0: I've grown to have a secondary passion for it. And I say secondary because it was a show initially that my wife really dug into. Throughout the years, kind of danced in and out. This show's been around for what, 14 years, 14 seasons? Yeah, more than that. That in and of itself is quite a lesson in figuring out longevity, figuring out how to manage well-being. And I still feel like every time I turn that show on, I never know quite what to expect. They haven't really developed a pattern. You know, the style changes and evolves a lot. It's very malleable, you know, <laughs> very malleable. So what do we learn from that? You know, that change in evolution creates longevity, perhaps.
1: Nothing is fixed. Everything changes, you know. So I, d- I don't know if it creates longevity because you there is no alternative
0: that's a great perspective you know we start to form that notion of duration based on a lot of egoic principles in some regards
1: i mean you look at yourself are you the same consciousness that you were when you were three years
0: old same consciousness no the awareness is is drastically you know and i would say that my same consciousness is probably inherently very different from what it was five minutes ago because of the conversation we're having I love that.
1: Yeah, exactly. And same with your physicality. You're different than you were when you were three. (laughs) But within that, you know, the recognition that we are constantly changing, that we're never fixed. Once you start to notice that, then freedom is created because you're constantly evolving. Right? Wow.
0: Yeah, that whole notion of physical perception is becoming very prevalent to me. You know, reaching my fifties and how much of that in and of itself is I'm reaching my fifties, mm. but how much of that is physiological, you know, where I'm like, I know I could determine myself like a mother to do about anything. If I put my mind to it, I could probably not know. Well, I can say beyond probably, I know without a shadow of doubt that I would literally probably work myself into the ground, doing a lot of things. If I push myself to that unhealthy level, I've done it before. It's mm. not always the best path. And usually it's probably the worst path. But nevertheless, with age, you know, I'm battling this idea. And I say battle because sometimes it is a battle. Sometimes it does present difficult questions. Why when I walk the dog now even versus six months ago? Even though I am doing on average about yeah, 10,000 to 18,000 steps a day, walking five miles a day. Just this morning, I'm walking in a what variables are different that I am winded this morning. I should be by my expectation gaining conditioning rather than feeling like I'm losing it. Where's the warranty? Where's the warranty? I'm oh, ready to warranty. trade this thing in. Yeah. Let's upgrade. Where is the better self? And I continue to push myself a little harder, a little harder. And it's that adjustment now. Where does the ego say things are going? And how do I empower that?
1: So I'm going to go from my own instinct here. And to me, this idea that our body is slowly starting to erode. And yes, we can influence this by our expectations, (laughs) but inevitably we're all going to, you know, die. If we have a birthday, we're going to have a death day, all of us. So moving slower or faster, in fact, faster and faster towards that. It feels faster. It starts <laughs> to change the way that we see ourselves. You know, it starts, we start to look at our bodies and it's falling apart. You know, we've spent all of this life building a body and it, and yet it falls apart. We've attached everything to this body without truly appreciating it.
0: Is it falling apart or are we just starting to kind of unconsciously recognize where even this body is somewhat of an anchor for what we ultimately might become? You know, I've got close friends that I've interviewed on the show that have become close friends now that have shared their near death, near death or actual death experiences and coming back to life in this presence. Yeah. And even though they can share portions of that, even from their perspective, it's, well, we almost were there, but I still don't quite know what's on the other side of where I was. Yeah. Or was that the it? (laughs) So are we just simply shedding some of this that prepares us for whatever it is on that other side? That's my perspective. I have a healthy respect for death. I'll say that. Yeah. Respect for death where I might even challenge that from my own ego. Sometimes I've challenged that a lot of times and put myself in unnecessary harm's way. (laughs) But I don't have an unhealthy fear of it. That's good. You yeah. Know, which is kind of a duality. Well, there's kind of a fear in waking up every day and feeding yourself, nurturing yourself, not stepping in front of a bus. There's a healthy fear in that because part of us has this kind of, I'd say, irrational fear about it because maybe what's on the other side is completely the thing. We don't know till we get there.
1: So it's interesting because if you look at the deep meditators, I'm going based on, for example, the Buddhists, right? They go through a process of meditating even within their sleeps what they're trying to do is remain conscious at the slightest levels of awareness so they lucid dream and they actually go in and they meditate within their dream and the idea is that they can then go into a scenario where they're dying where all of their organs are shutting down right and they can witness it they can witness what happens once you leave you leave your body and then they can record that going through the gateway or the Bardo or whatever it is into this different life. So they, they, they document it. If that's something that you're, you're willing to
0: explore. That's an interesting one. It's something that I don't know that I've brushed up with that. I'll say deep of an experience I do regularly, you know, when I was, I've grown lax a little bit in my meditation practices. I have to admit you got to be transparent. I've grown what I would maybe say lax compared to what I prior did. A year or so ago, you know, I was spending sometimes I've got a very free schedule. I wake up when I naturally wake up. I don't try to make it a habit that says I have to get up at 4 a.m., 5 a.m. every day. I allow my body to guide me now. When it's rested, I wake up. Sometimes I wake up when I'm unrested because, you know, there again, waking up sometimes for various things that aren't stress related from my conscious mind. Right. Yeah. Unconsciously, I'm sure there is because there are filter options there that are going on that it's unconscious because you're not aware of it. <laughs> and until somebody points out that, well, this may be stressing you, then you kind of become aware of it. But back to that idea of meditation, I was spending sometimes an hour, an hour and a half present and in that state. I'll say that dancing in and out of different phases, sometimes going into that kind of out of body experience, experiencing that energy flow to the top of your crown or you know, from certain aspects that. Third eye that's been labeled the all-seeing eye. And there again, I've seen quite a few things out of that perspective. I've seen quite a few ideas. I have gotten into that kind of dream-like state of that where it's like looking not even from within myself at myself, but being outside of myself and seeing other things. I'll put it that way.
1: Yeah, and it's I've, I've done that as well. And you get back in your body, and it's like, oh, God, this old carcass. And so, <laughs> oh, my back hurts. but one of the things that i wanted to sort of help help the people who are watching or listening relate to you know what happens after we die and i don't think any of us you know i can't say I, i really can't say because i can't remember but maybe have you ever sort of come to in the middle of a waking dream or uh when you're meditating and you notice that you've been completely you've forgotten and you've kind of wake up and you are actually having an embodied experience of somebody else's life. So I remember the first time I, I, I did this, I was actually in some desert watching uh, uh, somebody being executed. And I was like, oh my God. And I was actually fully conscious within that moment, interacting, feeling it in my body. And then the next minute, it's like, come back to meditation. Who am I? I'm Georgie. I'm sitting here. Okay, who who am I? It's like when you dream. I I dream. I I can I can yeah. be fluid genders, fluid ages, all the. <laughs> so then it begs the question: Who am I? Who is this ego? Who is this consciousness? And that to me is what death is. That to me is who we are. It's sort of that very wise uh, story that we're all told: Row 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 your boat gently down the stream, merrily merrily merrily. Life is but a dream. It's just a stream of different consciousness experiencing different egos, different personas, different whatevers. Who are we? Who are we really? We're whoever we're perceiving ourselves to be right now.
0: Thank you, Georgie, for that sermon today. It's been great having you here at The Light Inside. (laughs) (laughs) That is a episode closer today. I feel unless, you know, you feel we might have a little more to offer on that.
1: I think that's that's pretty much a great place to we are all much bigger than who you believe you are.
0: Yes, I'm in awe and wonder right now because I'm like, yeah, I just I'm checking out. I have nothing more to add today <laughs> other than a gracious and hearty. Thank you for joining us. This has truly, truly been a mind blowing, expanding experience and conversation. And I am so grateful for having met your acquaintance and made this very deep and meaningful connection with you.
1: Oh, thank you for having me, Jeffrey. Thank <laughs> you for, for listening to us.
0: Thank you truly for sharing with us today.
1: This is really fun, Jeffrey. I really, really enjoyed it. And I, it was really brilliant. <laughs> I love the story about the wolves.
0: We traded, I think, about 20, 30 questions ahead of time on this. And I don't think we asked a single one and I don't think we needed to. The ego said, The questions in that case, is the ego coming out? We just allow that present consciousness to breathe, exist, and be. So thank you for that.
1: Yeah, thank you, Done. And if you'd be open to just sharing with your readers or subscribers, I offer like a, a free chat or a coaching session for anybody who's serious about exploring themselves. So it's no obligation. Uh, but I ask that they're they're deeply curious. They come deeply curious. <laughs> Amazing. You can go to my website, georginahallaby.com. So G-E-O-R-G-I-N-A-H-A-L-A-B-I.com, or you can find me on LinkedIn. There is also an opportunity to come and have a chat with me, or if you're open to a coaching session, you can book in a discovery call with me. It's no obligation, no pressure, but I do ask that you honor both of our times by coming deeply curious and we'll explore what's been getting in your way and what will allow you to achieve what it is you want using your good ego to get there.
0: (laughs) Please allow that curiosity to pull yourself that way. This truly has been A very lightning engagement, a very real and genuine connection. So thank you for that.
1: Thank you, Jeffrey.
0: (laughs) How do we own our responsibility and take authority while still remaining open with each other? Such a pertinent and empowering question. Georgie and I have discussed the concept of ego and how it affects our perception of self. When viewed through thoughtful filters, the ego can be used as a tool to help us access higher consciousness, and we can also see that negativity can be seen as a gift or a curse depending on how we perceive it. Sometimes we only see ego as one aspect, and in many regards we tend to stigmatize it throughout society. Yet that same ego can be a force of good, one that empowers our ability to grow and expand when more effectively utilized. From the pre-conventional stages of our early childhood to our more evolved phases of ego growth that culminate in the post-autonomous stages, we are all on that journey toward our higher self, that journey to discover the light inside. You can find out more about our levels of ego development by visiting our blog at www.thelightinside.us. If you found this information useful, Please share it with someone you love. As always, we're grateful for you, our valued listening community. Thank you for joining us. This has been The Light Inside. I'm Jeffrey Biesecker.